Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We all have to do some kind of work, and we've all had to work ever since we stopped hunting and gathering. And probably many people considered hunting and gathering work then. But is work something we have to do to earn our leisure in society? Or is it rather more fundamental a human urge than that? Today, I'm joined by Professor Jan Lukasen, who has just finished a comprehensive history of work through all human societies across time. And he's going to tell me more of this substantial subject. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Jan, welcome to the Future Imperfect podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Would you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Well, uh, I'm a historian, and I've written a book about the history of work from prehistory onwards, so from the beginning of humankind until now. And why have I done so? Because it's not just something that you do in a lazy afternoon. Uh, <laughs> Um, I've done so because of uh, curiosity. Uh, I've always been intrigued by work and by working people, mainly, I think, because it fills uh, most of our time. It's the most important occupation that we have in life, maybe apart from sleeping. That might come second. And I think it's a bit strange that we tend to think about work as something that we have to do which we should not do because leisure, free time, that's the aim of life. And then there is something nasty like work that we have to do. I think that's a strange way of looking upon the most important thing that we do in our lives. Well, that's wonderful. Before we drill down into that, what's the name of the book for people that want to go and read it? The book is called The Story of Work, A New History of Humankind. Wonderful. So I would imagine, if you're going back to the very earliest days of humanity, work was about survival, literally. I would imagine it was about gathering enough resources to, to survive in the environment. Was it? Or, or do we have any evidence of what work 
was back at the very early days and then how you would define work? Maybe a definition first, because that's very crucial to the book. Okay. Uh, so to start with the negative, it's not just about the male industrial worker earning a wage. It's about uh, all useful work, including, especially including, uh, household work. So uh, taking care of the food, taking care of the children, and so including in that way uh, not only men but also women, also if they don't earn a wage for what they do. That does not mean that what they do is less important than what wage earners do or employers do or uh, independent producers do. So it's a very wide definition of work that I apply. And while writing the book, I've become more and more convinced that this is the right approach because otherwise it's just very accidental what you include and what you don't include. And because it has basically to do with how um, uh, workers being remunerated. And the other aspect of it is that you have immediately as a unit of analysis, not only the individual person working, but the household. Because that's the basis of all our cooperation, whether we earn uh, money for it, yes or no. And then the first Part of your question, then going back to the, let's say, the beginning of our existence as humans. Yes, it's pure necessity, but don't forget it's also a necessity at this very moment. Imagine that you and me and everybody would stop working for, let's say, one or two weeks. We all would be dead. We would be dead completely. There would be no distribution. There would be nothing in the shops. The tap would not be running. The electricity would not uh, work. It would be the end of humankind very, very quickly. So necessity is a basis of work. But having said that, that's not all. There is also pleasure in work. I think that's very important. And you just said, what's the evidence? Most important evidence for us as historians, of course, because by uh, excavating, we can't see what our forefathers or foremothers did and thought hundreds of thousands of years ago, but we have the analogy of anthropology. And anthropologists over the last centuries have very intensively studied hunter-gatherers, as they are called. And our hunting-gathering period in our history, that's 98% of our history, that we have been hunter-gatherers. So it's very important to know how such societies were organized as to work. And then you see, it's a lot of work to hunt and to gather and to uh, maintain your existence in that way. But at the same time, that's not the whole story. You see also that people uh, like it. Well, of course, not all. eh? We, We do not like all of our work, but we also don't hate all our work. Otherwise, it would be impossible to, to perform anything. And the pleasure the the fun is, I think, basically in not only achieving something, but that the other uh, members of your household or of a small tribe recognizes your achievements. Because we only can be proud if others let us be proud. Otherwise, it's nothing. It's just staring in a mirror 
congratulating ourselves, but that's, that's of course, crazy <laughs> in the end. Well, one of the interesting things I think about the hunter-gatherer society is that it's defined by finding resources that are there and bringing them back. True. And I believe that that's the sort of period before agriculture. And agriculture is defined as creating those resources more locally and then gathering them. So one is a sort of almost passive finding of resources, which, as you say, I think is the vast tract of human existence has been going out and finding things where they happen to grow, mm-hmm. where they happen to be. And only recently, and by recently, I mean the last few thousands of years, have human beings settled, grown, and kind of created their own resources in the local area. Is that, is that your understanding? Yeah, true. But I think if you call a hunting gathering passive, then you risk to make these people, well, like uh, stupid, dull, just fine. Because... <laughs> especially hunting, that's not passive at all. eh? Yes, I suppose I used the wrong word there. By passive, I mean there are things in the environment you go out to find, and it takes a lot of skill and a lot of energy and a lot of luck and randomness in it as well. I believe hunting in particular in hunter-gatherer societies these days is is one of those rich reward but often failure kind of high-risk, high-reward situations, especially hunting big game. And if you think about some of the creatures that early man in, in the Paleolithic must have been hunting, like some of the giant creatures, which if you work with big animals like horses, you know how dangerous they can be, let alone dogs. You think of something that's twice as big as a horse that wants to kill you as well. Yeah, yeah. That's actually quite a dramatic fight you're going to have with a, with a creature there. But then agriculture comes along and I wonder, I mean, work then starts to become a different thing. It's almost as if I would imagine the hunter-gatherer, you work and existence are intertwined they're they're all part of the same kind of thing and then does your book just i'm sure it does but the idea that suddenly you're working in a location repeatedly doing things seasonally and potentially working for somebody else when did people start working for somebody else in human history that's later but as as to the difference between agriculturists and hunter-gatherers the difference is mainly, I think, in the, the size of the community, because farmers work as households. And there is much, of course, there is cooperation between uh, households or farmers. And uh, let's say in, in harvest time, then you uh, help each other out and so on. But basically, it's much more concentrated in households. So it's a smaller unit than a band of hunter-gatherers. That's, I think, very important. And it also seems to imply that the division of tasks between men and women becomes much more prominent than among hunter-gatherers. Because hunter-gatherers, we have the idea that it's the man, the hunter, and the woman who gathers. But if you look, in fact, and that you were alluding to it, when you hunt big game, you can't do it on your own. Also not with two or three men. The entire community has to chase the game into a position where it really can be killed. It can be uh, hunted into a cave or whatever. So only a big community, I mean, uh, so several households together can do that uh, hunting. And agriculture can be done in smaller units. I think that's an important difference. And then... When do people start to work for others, let's say in a subordinate position? 
let's say, working for members of other families, because that's what it basically is. Uh, that's only possible when you have enough specialization, and that's only possible when you have substantial surplus in agriculture, and especially among herders. There you can have, let's say, a kind of accumulation of goods and a surplus. And then if there is a surplus, it enables you to have people who do not take care of their own food, but uh, become, uh, let's say, a carpenter or smith or something else and have to rely on the food produced by uh, farmers. And then, of course, you get an exchange. Well, if you have that at a level of that, you can have uh, cities and states. So cities from, let's say, starts from 5000 BCE and states uh, 2300 BCE, then you can have a situation in which you have so many specialists that society has to be organized. It's not, let's say, a, a collection of small farms, of peasants, uh, but it has to be organized. And then you have different types of organization. So you can, you can have a city organization, uh, which I describe, state organization, and in the end, markets. And each of these types, they have their specific kinds of uh, dependent workers in a, a city, especially the old Mesopotamian city-states, there the organization of work was around the temple. So let's say everybody works for a god. But of course, there are some people who are more near to the god than others. <laughs> uh, so yes. these are the priests, and they collect the surpluses, and they redistribute it among people who do not farm, uh, you might say, basically. And of course, they take themselves the, the largest share clearly. Uh, in states, uh, there you see something very interesting, and there you see the, for the first time really dependent labor, because states are uh, able to organize armies and to fight other states. That's what basically is new about states. And then the big choice is, imagine that you have won, what do you do with the enemy? Do you kill it, which you can, uh, or do you let them work for yourself? And then, well, you, you make them into slaves. So slavery is the first kind of dependent uh, labor. So before there is wage labor, there was slave labor. And that's what you see in all big states that uh, they organize dependent labor in such a way. That's interesting. Because of, you've got working animals as well, I would imagine that, yeah. that animals work as well. But that's absolutely fascinating that slave labor probably is the, one of the earliest forms for other people in, in many ways. You know, as, as you say, what do you do when you conquer? If you've got spare resources, you've got enough to feed an army who aren't growing food themselves. They defeat somebody, kill some people, but capture lots of other people. What do you do with that resource now? Those human beings require food to eat, uh, but you don't want to integrate them. So then, then they have to produce. Eh? Yes. You are, not, uh, you are not just putting them in prison and feeding them. and That would be crazy. And besides, it would be completely impossible, of course. Mm. So you, you might, well, you can put them to work in several ways. You can 
put them as a group in the wild nature to colonize a plot. Or you can uh, distribute them among farmers to work for individual farmers. You even can uh, organize them as armies, which sometimes happens. You have slave armies in the past. I have always been fascinated by the concept of slave army because you think if you arm slaves and teach them how to fight and organize yeah. them, you, you think, why are they still slaves then? How, how, how does that work? How, what's the human psychology behind that? And I don't know. Well, uh, maybe we don't have to discuss this at length <laughs> now, but it's especially when you, you capture uh, young boys ah. and then you discipline them into an army. And then let's say if you allow them to have children, these might become soldiers again. And then you have a very dedicated force, which is because you have uh, they are uh, uh, you have conquered them and you have uh, they they are uh, your property. They are loose from any other uh, any other society. Eh? Right. And then and then you even might give them certain privileges. Eh? So that then um, it is uh, you have a parallel in these uh, child uh, uh, soldiers that you hear of uh, uh, sometimes. Eh? Mm. They're also completely loose of their own family, uh, completely isolated, and then you in uh, well, yeah, then you force them in the, in in in. in uh, Initially, of course, to do uh, to uh, to fight for you and to kill for you and to uh, and so on, but it's especially uh, it's an isolated crowd that you that you manage. Mm. Uh, that that's a topic we should probably avoid going into for now. But maybe it's yeah. something we can we can look at other. <laughs> I, I wanted to get back to animals because one of the things that I'm aware of, um, I'm particularly interested in the medieval period, and one of the things I think a lot of people that talk about the medieval period from a modern perspective is how many animals there would have been around a household. The animals living and breeding, dying, being killed, being eaten, but also doing work. True. Sure. Yeah. And can you expand upon that a little bit? Well, um, you have working animals. If you make the parallel with humans, you have animals working for themselves, like virtually all wild animals, organizing food collectioning among themselves. And you have animals working for other animals, particularly what we are talking about now, let's say horses who uh, work for humans, uh, pigs, cows, camels, and so on and so forth. And there you have, um, I've described it not at length in my book, but I've discussed a little bit, that you have different types of domestication. You have animals who come to humans, especially dogs, that is, they have not been tamed by humans, but it's thought that they have come to humans. And then uh, that's one. You may uh, tame animals and then the offspring also becomes tame. And you have animals that you have to tame each time, like elephants. Let's say babies of tamed elephants are not tamed elephants. They have to be taken out of nature each time and again, and each time they have to be trained. Oh, that's fascinating. I'd never knew that about elephants, yes. And, and the same also goes, I think, for uh, uh, hyenas and animals working for humans, and not only in order to be slaughtered, but in all other ways. That's, of course, a very important part of human history, because it's just before the machinery, let's say, uh, machinery wind-driven 
or water-driven. Uh, well, we, we depended to a great extent of animals. And it also gave uh, some populations, like the Yamnaya that I uh, described in southern Russia, it gave them a big advantage over others to such an extent that they have conquered uh, big parts of uh, Western Europe. And uh, David Reich, he thinks that by analysis of DNA, he can demonstrate what these people have done, that they have killed their uh, male enemies and they have taken care that their offspring came from the, the women. So they have uh, just taken the women and killed the men. And that was because, and that's how we come to it, because they were the first ones to tame horses. And then uh, later on, they sold horses to the south, to Mesopotamia. And it's a long story, but it's a very gruesome story. But that's also a variety of organizing work. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the origins of horse training, because I have a vague notion that it might have been children that first were playing with the herds and following them as pets and climbing around them as children do and realized that it was quite fun to ride a horse and you could make it go in a certain direction or, or train it to go. And I always wonder whether horse riding comes from children's play as much as any adult suddenly going, let's try and ride that horse. Um, I wonder about history, about discoveries like that, you know. I haven't come across this, uh, but big authorities are a man called Anthony, who has uh, written all about the Yamnaya and the horses, and also a man called uh, Khazanov, a Russian specialist in animal farming and especially uh, herding and so on. But they don't mention this idea of yours. I'm not saying that it's impossible, but I've not come across it. I, I, I've not studied. I've not studied it at all. It's just a, I, I'm very aware how inquisitive and unthreatened by things like horses children are uh, i always have to i have to when i've got children around my horses i always have to be careful horse can be dangerous and i realize i'm setting up fears in their head whereas before they wouldn't they clamber over them and if the horse is good natured the horse just ignores them i always felt that might be a plausible way where people went hang on you can sit on a horse <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, do something yeah. with it and I don't think there was probably ever a time when they, well, there must have been a time when the first human being sat on the first horse. Yeah. But whether it then spread from there or whether it happens simultaneously in many places or roughly, you know, when did these things start, you know? Yeah, yeah. Between 5,000 and 4,000 BCE in southern Russia and the Russian southern Russian plains. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, it's, it, it, these people had a big advantage, not only because of the, the horses they could tame, but also because of the metals they could find in the Urals, and because of the uh, endless supply of salmon and other fish in the Dnieper and the Dniester and so on. So it was a combination of natural advantages which they've mm. played out and and they are at the basis of the Indo-European uh, society. Mm. That's quite a long time ago. So that predates the Mongol oh, yeah, yeah, by, yeah, yeah, by yeah. many thousands of years. Yeah, many thousands of years. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to have to look into that, that whole period because, of course, the origins of horsemanship, I'm fascinated by it. Um, yeah. And it's gone in lots of different directions as well and how big horses are. And, of course, it comes down to spare resources, doesn't it? Because it's something you mentioned right at the very beginning, which is, once you have spare resources, once you have an excess, 
you can have specialists. You could have somebody training horses yeah, professionally. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, what these horses, what I also described, but that's much later, let's say for the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Uh, I quote a proverb in India, which says, horses from the north and slaves from the south. So it is especially in tropical regions, it's very uh, hard to raise horses. So uh, the more south you come, the more you are uh, um, dependent on importing horses from the north. That goes for Africa, that goes for Central Asia. And then, of course, the horses have to be paid. And one of the ways of paying them was by exporting slaves from northern India to Central Asia. Oh, so they swapped slaves for horses? Well, maybe not necessarily directly 10 slaves to one horse or something like that. Mm. But, but in fact, if you, were, if you think about uh, uh, exports and imports, that's basically what happened. So I wanted to get back a little bit to cooperation. And um, yeah. you touched on cooperation a bit. And we talked about households. So I presume a household has a typical makeup from your perspective. How would you describe the, what you would describe as a household? Well, a household is uh, income pooling and uh, units. And mostly of the time, it also means that you consume together on a daily basis. Not always, of course, because members of the household can be away for some time as temporal migrant laborers and so on. But basically, that's what it is. And you have the age differences. Of course, it's also a training unit, you might say. And it's interesting that at a certain point in time, then comes the moment when either children leave the household to join another household or that members of other households come in as brides or grooms. And there you have the different systems uh, in the world where either the uh, women go to the household of their husbands and become subservient to uh, their in-laws. India is a good example of this. Or men uh, leave the household and become members of the household of their brides. And in the first type, you see it seems uh, there are, um, I'm following anthropologists, much more uh, inequality than in the other type. So if women leave to join a household, that tends to generate more inequality. Yeah, and especially if they leave, as uh, in also the Indian case shows in the past, at a very early age, but also in China. Uh, so let's say at age 10, 11, 12, of course, then you haven't had a chance to develop yourself. And so from the authority of your father, you go under the authority of your father-in-law and also of your husband, who in those cases sometimes has a much older age. So then let's say boys of around 20, marry girls of around 10. And of course, thinking about work and uh, to what extent can you determine the way you work that has a big impact. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways. Because I was also thinking about the units, the household, because it, it wouldn't necessarily have been one man, one woman in some cases, would it? Most of the time, uh, that's the case. Uh, okay. So uh, let's say, polyamorous, <laughs> if there is any armor involved in it at all. Yeah. Is is more of an exception. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the nu- so what we think of as the nuclear, what I think of as the nuclear family, one man, one woman, children, is a sort of fairly fundamental component of human society going back a long time. Yeah, and as I said, it can be three generational, hmm. but of course that depends a lot on on the life expectancy. When people do not grow very old then there is not much chance for a multi-generational or not for a very long period of multi-generational households. I was interested in you talking about the priesthood, if you like, the very early city-states that were many thousands of years ago. About You said they were organized around the temple and the excess was given to the temple and the, the priests sort of claimed quite a lot of that excess for themselves, almost certainly. And that's the beginnings of hierarchy, isn't it? And politics, I suppose. It is. At least it's a much higher degree of hierarchy than in households. And it is interesting to think of the way people could sustain it. Because in the hunter-gatherer society, there is a high degree of egalitarianism, eh? There are not many big differences. Of course, there are some differences, but let's say in the group is small enough that they can check each other, that everybody does his or her best to to a certain extent. And then uh, you divide the food according to this. But it's not very easy in a small group to do nothing and just to get as much as uh, from the others. You, You can imagine In such societies uh, as uh, the earliest city-states, there is a bigger chance of inequality, especially that the top of society gets a bigger share. And then this uh, grows a problem among, let's say, the common man. eh? Why should uh, Mr. Johnson get more than me? Uh, This is only possible if you have a shared ideology, and that's because it's not by accident that God is the center. And the ideology is that you produce for the God, not for the priests, but for the God, that if you have a shared ideology, that this gives meaning, it protects society, it's good for the common wealth, 
then you can uh, have such forms of still limited, but still inequality. And that's very much in general. There are two ways of uh, a sustainable, unequal society. One is force, let's say like apartheid or concentration camps and so on. They're brute force. But that is, of course, not very sustainable in the long run. And the other is an ideology which tells you that this is, this is good. You might think that inequality is wrong, but in the end, it's good. Because, and then you can fill it out yourself. With a god or a power or a, some kind yeah, of entity or, that, yeah. Yeah, or even, let's say, in communist Russia, uh, where the elite uh, had, of course, a lot of privileges. This was good because uh, society as such was good and they were making sure that society went into the right direction. And, of course, another alternative is uh, what we have in our society, which we call a capitalist society, uh, that we say, well, there is inequality. But why is this so? Not because we want inequality. No, no. It's the outcome of the market process, and it's good because it makes people do their best, etc. So as such, it's not good, but in the end, we need to have stories, what I call ideologies, but that it has to be a shared ideology which uh, makes it possible to have inequality, again, unless you use brute force and you have a kind of slave societies and so on. I was going to ask a little bit about the medieval period, my area of particular interest, but it's a vast, especially, you know, I talk about medieval, I tend to talk about medieval England, which is a tiny, tiny part of it. Uh But the medieval period was, I think, was fairly interesting because we came, it was post-Roman and the Romans were very organised. I mean, the more you study them, the more organised and systematic you think they were. They're almost modern in many ways, in their level of organisation and administration. And then it goes away and we, we kind of almost... We freewheel downhill a little bit yeah. <laughs> as a human society. So how would you contrast the Roman system of organizing work, for example, because they were a slave-based economy, I believe, mostly. I may be wrong there. With the sort of medieval period, which again, I think started out partly as slave-based, but quite rapidly transitions away from that, but into the peasanthood, into sort of, people that weren't necessarily slaves per se, but were pretty close to it in many ways. Yes, of course, that's a very important part of my book. Uh, Not only because you see it in, let's say, our part of the world, the transition from the Roman period to the early Middle Ages, but you see something similar in northern India. And the similarity between the two is that you have a highly monetized market economy before, let's say, until uh, 400 AD. And the evidence, of course, is archaeological that you have many small coins. So it's it's a deeply monetized economy where uh, wage labor is very important in both cases, uh, both India, northern India, and the Mediterranean and the Middle East. And then you see the emergence of a society with hardly any money, So let's say between 400 and 1100, especially without small money, without wage labor, I would say. So for for that reason, and that's also what I argue in my book, 
classical society is a slave society, but much more as a market society. Anyway, cities stop, labor specialization stops, uh, monetization stops. And then the alternative is basically a serf society where you have uh, vast uh, landscapes of small peasants and the small surpluses that they make because they are not specialized, so the surpluses are very small. These are not big latifundia, but all the small farms. But the small surpluses they uh, produce, they have to give to the nobility, which is a very primitive kind of nobility in terms of uh, material welfare. And sometimes they have to assist in uh, war making, which is also on a very small scale and very regional. And only around uh, very roughly 1100, you see in Europe and also in India, the re-emergence of cities, the re-emergence of labor specialization, the re-emergence of coining and deep monetization of wage labor and so on. Do we know why that happened? Because it's almost an apocalypse. I mean, people talk about, you know, in science fiction, the apocalypse collapses society, but We lived through, well, we haven't lived through it personally, but societies have come through an apocalypse. The the collapse of the Roman Empire in Western Europe anyway must have been an apocalypse. Yeah, it is even more amazing because it happens at roughly the same time. Ah. And in between, you have what we call, let's say, the Middle East, where it does not happen. Ah. In the Byzantine Empire, it does not happen. In the Sasanian Empire does not happen. In the Arab civilizations, it does not happen. To the contrary, there you have a long continuation of uh, deep monetization, of urbanization, of labor specialization, until far into the Middle Ages. So I haven't found a good explanation for it. I might have missed it, and I'm certainly not a specialist in this, but Maybe I'm as equally amazed as you are, as I say, particularly because it's not only the story of Western Europe, there's a parallel in India. I'd never realised that. Again, I'm going to have to look that up because you've almost got two areas there which are quite different in many ways, you know, in terms of the environment and the way society is organised. But maybe there are more similarities. The idea that the overpinning of, sort of civilization basically just went away. I mean, London, you can see from the archaeology that Roman London was, was almost abandoned and people thought yeah. it was built by giants. They literally talked about yeah. it being haunted and London still existed, but it was a little bit further down the, I think it might have been further upriver, and this sort of haunted ruins of what mm. was left behind by giants. You know? Like Rome, right? Yes. The same, yeah? Let's say the medieval... Uh, inhabitants of Rome, I mean, uh, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century, yeah? they could just hide in a small corner of all these big, 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 big buildings. Yeah? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. It's definitely an area of history I want to explore more because the idea of giants in the past and people building fantastic things probably starts back then, at least, if not before. But, you know, seeing these massive things that you can't build anymore mm-hmm. and wondering how the ancients had the money to build this fantastic building and you're squatting in a corner with a, <laughs> you've got pigs in the forum or whatever and you're you're yeah. growing vegetables out the back where there used to be a bath yeah. and it took society an awfully long time to come back from that i mean as you say money 
I, I was reading about the Vikings and there are some dinars that appear to have come from the Islamic world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah Islamic, but that's big money. Yes, exactly. And you cannot use it for paying wages or for no. uh, buying things in the shop and so on. Yeah. It basically has to be seen as hoarding. Yes. It's silver. These are like somebody giving us a gold bar and and, and, and it's True. worth an awful lot, but you can't go to the local shop to spend yeah. it. No, I, these I, are savings. Yes. It's an area I'd like to explore more, but I think we're kind of running out of time here. I want to finish on the value of work. So in the medieval period, there's sort of lockdown on how much you could pay somebody for a day's work. Has there been a sort of, it's not monetary value, a kind of value of a one human being's work, physical work in a day? Has, has that been relatively stable throughout much of history from a work perspective or, or has it varied wildly? It has varied indeed because the, the lockdown you uh, just alluded to, that's after the plague mm. in Western Europe, then there was a shortage of labor. And the laborers realized very well that this enabled them to ask more for their work. And that's what they did. And then you see as a reaction all over Europe, authorities in England, of course, uh, the Statute of Labor and so on is the most well-known but you have had such initiatives all over Europe to curb remuneration of labour. It didn't work either, though, did it, really? I mean, it, no, it, no it, did, it did not really work. It worked to such an extent that you could force uh, beggars to work for a boss for a minimum wage and poor women and children and so on. But no, it did not work. The market was stronger. And in fact, talking about wage labourers, let's say from those periods onward, so let's say from 1100 onward, you see always this tension between uh, the work that you do and the remuneration that you get. And this, I think, basic idea that there should be a fair remuneration. And if that is not happening, then you have two solutions. You might say that you have the market solution, which in fact is that you try to change boss which you can do after the feudal period, or not only the boss in the town or village where you live, but you go to another city or another town, and that's urbanization. So that's migration is one of the main answers. And because urbanization depends totally on immigration, because cities in general have a negative natural outcome, so more people die in the city than they are born. So they depend on immigrants, especially to grow. So that's one. And the other is collective action. That if, the, let's say, what I call the individual strategies don't work, then you try or you might try collective strategies. And you see it in craftsmen guilds and journeymen guilds and their actions. And, of course, later on in uh, trade unions and uh, cooperatives, mutual benefit societies. Well, there are many, many, many forms. Uh, that is, for me, the, the great story of wage labor and the struggle to have a decent remuneration. And that's the story, at least in this part of the world for the last, let's say, 1,000 years or, or so. <laughs> tension between the workers and the bosses. Certainly tension between them, but also uh, bosses. And uh, now I'm not flattering you as a boss. <laughs> but uh, no, but there is a big tradition also in your country uh, of bosses 
who see the problem and try to come up with uh, more equal remunerations and curbing their own profits and, well, the Cadbury's, Josiah Wedgwood, and there are many, many of such initiatives. And in fact, of course, the uh, cooperation of employers in the emergence of welfare states, of course, some employers were uh, radically against it, but they could not, after the First and Second World War, they were not able to hold it up. But that's also a caricature. There also, there's also an awareness among employers that if only to have a sustainable society, that chasing uh, profits cannot be the only solution. Although, let's say, a purely liberal interpretation of market society asks for this. Yes, I mean that's the difference between short-term and long-term thinking from a you yeah. know, in a business. The short-term gain might be quite big, but medium to long term, you collapse your company and actually the net value of that decision is much worse ultimately. And therefore, the correct decision is the the medium to long term positive decision. Yeah, and that's that's the history of the last 40 years. Mm. The the big turn around uh, 1970s, 1980s, where we have been trying this liberal model. And if I'm not mistaken, we are now Again, at the point where uh, a lot of people ask themselves, well, was this so wise and is this how we have to continue? Mm. Also because of environmental reasons, of course, that's quite a different and not unimportant argument. And massive impacts. I think that this pandemic that we're still going through, hopefully towards the end of it, but, but nonetheless still firmly in a, I think, society-changing historical event that we're actually living through. I think there will be ramifications from changing work patterns that will echo for many, many decades ahead. I've certainly noticed it amongst people I work with. People are changing the sort of work patterns which almost came from the Industrial Revolution, that you've got to be at the factory at eight, you work and you stop at five. And people are flexing those hours. They're probably doing as many hours work, but they're voluntarily flexing it. And this whole concept of work and leisure, which we started with, It's sort of almost more integrated in that work isn't something you'd prefer not to be doing. Work is part of your daily routine and you can can merge it with what might be called leisure. If you're lucky enough to work in a creative industry, for example, like the computer games making, it's going to be fascinating in decades to look back. Yeah, Yeah, that's one aspect of it. The other, of course, is the balance between what they call reproductive work and productive work in the household. And a third aspect, and that is that we used to cooperate. And as in the beginning of our conversation, uh, I explained that I think that gives meaning to our work. But then we have to work also physically with others. And so even if it's technically it were uh, possible that we do uh, everything on our own and be more productive and so on, it would give, in the end, much less satisfaction. So how to find a balance between real and also physical cooperation, which is important also for our self-esteem, and let's say the technical possibilities which were already there, but which we have discovered now in the corona pandemic. Yeah. Where do you think, if you were to imagine 50 years from now, how what, where do you think the work will fit in the sort of history of, 
of how we've seen work. Can you imagine us entering a post-work phase with so much spare resource or can you see it going the other way or could it do both? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think um, you can observe that if you take households and couples as a unit, they work now more hours for money than they used to do 40 years ago. A lot of housewives were not engaged in the labor market, and now most women are. And the gains are not so big since 40 years. So we are making more hours, especially in this part of the world. And there are several reasons for it. I think one is the income inequality, that's clear. But also, we have become dependent on a lot of work in the health service. Many, many more people are working, let's say, as a percentage of the total occupational population in health. And our average age is growing to grow as well. Then, let's say, uh, the globalization of connections The effect of it is that the distance between producers and consumers is immense now. Imagine all the stuff that's coming from China and that's now upholded somewhere in the Suez Canal. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have chips for the cars because, et cetera, et cetera. The effect of it is that you need to have a lot of people who are checking all the faces in between and the controllers. And what I call in my book, the controllers of the controllers of the controllers. Think of this uh, uh, baby power scandal in China. eh? As soon as you have a food scandal, then we say, oh, there should be an authority to check it. eh? Why haven't we seen it? So we are endlessly, uh, because the links between us humans have become so long in order to be sure that we get the stuff or the service that we want to, and that there's no abuse, a lot more of uh, jobs are being created. And then the third reason is the need of education. We we have been talking about permanent education, education permanente, and that means that more and more people are involved in education. So on the one hand, we are, uh, let's say, losing jobs because of mechanization, robotization, etc. On the other hand, we are massively creating jobs and not maybe conscientiously, but that's what's happening. Uh, you see the shifts in the occupational uh, censuses. And I think this also answers our innate need to work because we gain significance out of work. It's not only, let's say, kind of a technical equation which uh, makes us lose some work and, and gain other work. We also like it. And that's uh, that's, I think... With my limited brains, of course, I think it's very unlikely that uh, work will vanish and also that it will vanish quickly. We have had predictions from Jules Verne and from the mid-19th century, all predicting that within 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years, all work would be done by machines and we would all be riding bicycles, uh, doing playing games, and that would fulfill us. I I don't think so. I, I don't think that evolutionary, that is how we humans are built. But if you ask me what I think, what will be the development, that's one thing what I think of. The other is, of course, this this crucial fact of fair remuneration. And there we have now 
since 20, 30 years, you see a world emerging with competing value systems. We have, let's say, Western Europe, we have America, we have Russia, we have China, possibly India, and they all have different ideas about this crucial aspect. And so I think there will be a competition between these systems. And, of course, I hope that the most fair one will prevail, but I'm not sure at all. I mean, we have seen such massive disasters in the the history of the last hundred years that we cannot simply be too optimistic. I'm also not a pessimist, but I see this competition now. And you see it now also in in the European Union that gradually the emphasis on the market, which will solve everything. Eh? As long as we have a smooth market, then we all will be able to buy everything and we will be the most happy uh, uh, citizens of this world. I think that is too narrow a definition that we need more ideals. And I think ideals of fairness, you see them coming back. To what extent? I don't know. There ends my function as a historian. I can only see what has happened. But I'm willing to speculate, but this is no longer academic. Exactly. Speculation is fascinating, especially if you base it on knowledge from the past. But of course, who knows? Uh, and that's, yeah. the, that's the excitement, in a way, of the future. And also the fun of studying the past, when you can start to see things repeating, yeah, or you can yeah. see things where you go, wow, that must have been terrifying situation to live through and it's really interesting to study but if you were there at the time it must have been awful awful. we've chatted for a long time and thank you so much for having conversation with me and i really appreciate it it's been a delight uh and your book again for people that want to find out more about it yeah it has been published by yale and it's the story of work a new history of humankind wonderful i've really enjoyed talking to you thank you very much thank you jason for the opportunity Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.